Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Now, as many of our listeners may know, algorithms are part and parcel of most software applications these days, and as such, are critical in the operation of all kinds of tools and devices, from TikTok, the social media app, to robo-advising platforms. But like anything nowadays, algorithms can be used for good and, well, evil. They can be unfair and biased, or they can be designed to operate in the public interest. Just how to do that, however, remains at times a mystery for not only many regulators, but also software engineers. So I was delighted when Michael Kearns, one of the nation's leading academic engineers, had the time to walk us through many of the issues of fairness in algorithms and to explain that algorithms can be programmed to behave in ways that are indeed socially optimal. It was a mind-blowing conversation, and in the wake of George Floyd's killing several months later, and after a summer of unrest, it carries especially salient lessons for an industry searching for reform and as a way to achieve the best of our moral aspirations. Michael, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. What exactly do you mean by an ethical algorithm? I mean, do, do algorithms actually have a moral character? So an algorithm doesn't have a moral character except insofar as its human designer decides to um, imbue it with one. And so what we mean by ethical algorithm design is the underlying science of, first of all, being precise um, in what we mean by important social norms like fairness and privacy. And then once we have committed to some precise notion of those concepts, actually like literally putting it into, say, the Python code of a computer program. So from the, from the standpoint then, ethics or morality or fairness, it's for just basically it's, it's a constraint like any other. It, it doesn't carry any normative value in and of itself. It's just something that you use and insert into the design of an algorithm to make sure that you're at least socially aware of some kind of norm that, again, has been given uh, computational uh, value. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and you know, what we're talking about in the book, first of all, just to be clear for your listeners, uh, we're not in any way proposing that algorithms should decide what, what morals we should enforce or what those morals should look like. Um, and in many ways, what we're proposing and what the research community we're representing in our book are doing is not that different than what legal scholars, philosophers, and regulators have been doing for decades or centuries already, which is you know, trying to say what we should mean by something like fairness um, and then enforcing it in some way. It's just that when we're, when we're doing it as computer scientists, we need to be precise enough that that notion could be described to a computer and actually implemented in its code. 
So has the the problem with algorithms uh, in terms of their lack of ethics been um, either that people haven't thought about ethics uh, or these notions like privacy or fairness, or that the way in which they've, they've tried to take account of these issues hasn't been effectively embedded in algorithms? I think it's much more the, the former than the latter. Um, so just to say a little bit more, a lot of times when we talk about algorithms in the context of decision-making about important things like lending, for instance, or consumer credit or criminal sentencing or the like, and more mundane applications like what ads Google shows you, um, what we really mean rather than algorithms is more precisely a predictive model trained by machine learning. And in general, the standard scientific methodology of machine learning asks that you you know, pick a model based on training data, you know, historical data, for instance, about who you gave loans to in the past and who defaulted and who did not default. And then you try to build some predictive model based on features of the applicant. Um, and in that process, you know, you'd basically say, find, find the model which minimizes the predictive error. And in that statement, there's nothing about morality whatsoever, right? It's just find the model which minimizes error. And there's no reason you should expect that by following that methodology, you should get things like fairness for free. So in particular, you shouldn't expect that the false rejection rate um, on a minority group will be roughly the same as it is on a, ma a majority group because you didn't ask for it in the statement of minimizing error. Okay, so, and I guess part of this is just sort of thinking about um, sort of, let's call it a classical conception of, of, of efficiency, and I'll just use a very concrete example for the audience, um, since you use the, the fair lending example. So you, you could theoretically construct some kind of algorithm or a model, really, uh, for uh, giving loans, uh, for extending credit, but that model doesn't necessarily have to take into consideration, say, gender or racial bias, um, even if it is a model that overall seems to be relatively effective at predicting uh, default rates. That's right. So, you know, and, and, and this is more than theoretical. This happens all the time. It will, most recently was in the news with Apple's new credit card underwritten by Goldman Sachs, in which there were a number of well-known technology figures that tweeted that despite the fact that they filed the taxes jointly with their spouse and their wife had a higher credit rating, somehow they got 10 times the credit limit on their Apple card than their wife did. Uh, and, you know, th this a simple way, not the only way, but a simple way in which these things happen. And I think this is you know, probably not the answer in the Apple card case, but if you have a, if you have a minority group in your data set or your population, and you're, what you're trying to do is to maximize accuracy overall. Well, by definition, you get more bang for the buck by maximizing your accuracy on the majority population than you do on the minority population because there's more of them, right? And, and so if, you, and if you're not careful to correct for this bias, you should expect that your error rate will be higher on the minority population than the majority population. And this is just one of, you know, a handful of ways in which uh, bad biases can creep into our predictive models. This is really interesting and, and obviously very important, uh, particularly in fintech, because you have not only the introduction of um, sort of more artificial intelligence, machine learning uh, strategies, 
uh, for lots of technologically sophisticated entrants. But but you do have more entrants and um, lots of different fintechs, even non-banks, who are thinking about ways to reach um, different aspects of the the U.S. population, and, and and at the same time, a growing concern here in Washington about making sure that the largest lenders are, are, are accountable in terms of how they extend loans. Walk us through what would be the process of correcting for, uh, you know, bias in your model, and I guess that's another way of saying this is, what's the, the technological process for increasing uh, fairness? Uh, in any particular uh, algorithmic model, yeah. So if you if you take the couple of examples I've mentioned already, for instance, um, your training data set um, is just drawn at random from the overall population, and so by definition, minority groups will be less represented in that data set than others and might suffer a higher error rate. One one potential fix to that is to actually go out and deliberately gather more data on those minority groups so that your training sample is balanced, right? So that those minority groups are not underrepresented in your data set. Um, the other the other way I mentioned which this bias can creep in is that you know, even if your data set is balanced, it just could be that the thing that the model that minimizes the error happens to exhibit some racial or gender bias, for example you can actually modify your machine learning algorithm and say, instead of, minimize, just, you know, instead of just minimizing the error rate overall, let me minimize the error rate subject to the constraint, for example, that the false loan rejection rate on black people and white people um, be the same. Or importantly, you could weaken that constraint and say, well, let me ask that the false rejection rate between those two populations not be identical, but within 1% or within 5% or within 25%. And um, this gives you a knob, right? This gives you a parameter, as we would say in machine learning, that you can adjust to trade off, to, to say how much fairness you'd like, right? So if I set that knob, knob to zero, meaning that those false rejection rates have to be identical, I'm asking for the strongest type of fairness. And as I, you know, relax that knob, um, I'm, I'm demanding less and less fairness. And one of the important points that we make in the book is that as you adjust this knob, you're, you're essentially trading off accurate, overall accuracy for fairness. And there's going to be a tension between those, those things. In general, anything you want to do to correct this bias is going to cost you in some way. In the first example I gave, it, it takes time and money to go out and gather more data from minority groups. And the second instance, you're not going out and gathering more data in the field, so to speak, but you are trading off error and unfairness. You know, that's a very interesting uh, observation, in part because the trade-off that you seem to be uh, uh, sort of walking us through is really the the, the trade-off of uh, not just, just fairness, but you could almost interpret that fairness as group ac- accuracy uh, or let's say, let's say majority group accuracy and minority group accuracy in, in terms of the data set. So as, as you had mentioned earlier on, if you just have more of one kind of uh, population in, uh, in your data set than another, then you may get more bang for your buck maximizing accuracy for that majority set. 
but there's still sort of the, uh, a basic uh, lack of accuracy in terms of the minority group. So, so there's there's always a trade-off. It's just a, a question of how big is the trade-off depending on how you design your model. Because I would assume that if you're a, a, a lender, um, and I'm just going to stick to fair lending because it's just a little bit easier uh, conceptually, you want to maximize you know, uh, your loans and minimize your default across your customer base, right? Um, and so now, now you may say to yourself, well, I'm not going to be able to necessarily maximize, uh, you know, get a 100% hit rate in terms of uh, re- repayment. So I, I may have a model that, that goes one way or the other. Uh, but it, it just appears to me as I listen to you walk us through, every model has a trade-off it's just a question as to what those trade-offs are um, and, you, you know, what are the, the, the choices behind the, the uh, uh, programmer or the software engineer uh, or the company employing the software engineer uh, when, it, when it comes to creating uh, the most effective uh, business strategy and, obviously, a set of lending decisions. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly right. And let me also point out that um, everything we've said here applies not only to what we would traditionally consider algorithms, but to the human lenders and human processes that made lending before these decisions were made in an algorithmic way. So, you know, imagine before there were computers, there were lenders, and those lenders made imperfect decisions. Sometimes they would falsely reject a qualified applicant, and sometimes they would give a loan that would default. And so we may we can't articulate what that algorithm was. Maybe people don't want to think about that in algorithm because there are people involved. But there was some process that's making this decision, these decisions collectively by a lending organization. And that collective process is picking some trade-off between overall accuracy and um, discrimination against subgroups, for example, that we might care to protect. And even though we can't articulate the algorithm, and perhaps we can't because the process is diffuse and human and inconsistent, we can't quantify exactly what that trade-off was, it was being made. And much of what we and our colleagues advocate is making those trade-offs precise, understanding the trade-offs that you face and and making a purposeful, deliberate choice with knowledge about where you fall on that spectrum. D- does, does the introduction of algorithmic modeling and computation make it easier uh, to calculate the trade-offs in the first place, right? You know, so uh, particularly in, in lots of uh, financial settings, right? You know, when you think about your, your, your human actor who's, say, making ad hoc decisions as, as potential clients and customers walk through his or her office, right? You know, if you're actually automating a lot of the decision-making, not to mention automating those decision-making, that that decision-making based on certain kinds of models, does it make it easier to sort of make those kinds of calculations as to what the trade-offs are um, uh, when when, uh, developing your business strategy? It it absolutely does. In particular, you know, if I actually, you know, if I have an algorithm, if I've written an algorithm or I have a predictive model that's making my lending decisions, I can literally um, engage in the trade-off that I just discussed before. I can... Uh, you know, if I have a machine learning algorithm that's going to build my predictive model from data, 
I can literally adjust this knob that I mentioned before, which trades off overall error for, let's say, the false rejection rate between a minority and a majority population, and, and literally trace out the curve, quantitative cur- curve, um, of what achievable values of error and unfairness can be simultaneously realized. So I can make this entirely quantitative and scientific. And so that I think is a good thing. But let me also point out that if I have an algorithm that's making these decisions at scale, like I'm a large lender and I have a single predictive model that is making um, these decisions, um, on the one hand, yes, it's easier for me to quantify these trade-offs, but on the other hand, if if I make a bad choice about this or, or I, I'm not intentional about it, then any harms I'm inflicting on a minority population will now be inflicted at scale, as we would say, right? So another way of thinking about this is, you know, imagine in the old days before computers and algorithmic decision makings, certainly, you know, there were racist loan officers, right? And so if you were a minority citizen and you went to a loan officer who rejected your loan because of your race, um, in principle, there was always the possibility that you could go next door to a competing lender and get a non-racist loan officer and a different result. These days, when algorithms make decisions at scale, um, often that 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 recourse is not possible. So, more precisely, I mean, probably many of your listeners would agree with the statement these days that if you get rejected by a loan from one large lender these days, the chances that you'll get rejected by all of them are quite high because they're all using the same underlying data sets and predictive models. In particular, they're all using kind of credit scoring um, from, from all, uh, you know, a very small number of large credit scoring firms. I think a lot of people listening to this podcast are, are, are thinking about that issue uh, for sure. And, and they're also thinking about the introduction of alternative data, uh, particularly when, they're, when a lot of these uh, smaller fintechs are trying to think through and execute lending decisions uh, in many cases, that 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 uh, the data suggests may be even less uh, discriminatory than uh, sort of earlier legacy models, but w- we have a lot of uh, regulators, obviously, uh, who listen to the show, and lots of uh, folks who are involved in some way in thinking through policy issues. How do you translate this idea uh, into some kind of operative legislation or 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 or, or Again, uh, policy. Uh, I think you made the very interesting observation early on that programmers and policymakers and legislators and uh, regulators, they're kind of in the same business, right? Just one is working on the precision of certain kinds of inputs for the purposes of, of, of policymaking, sort of verbal policymaking, and then the others are are in the business of making uh, computational models to get to certain kinds of outcomes. Um, what what kinds of things can you think about in t- from a policy perspective to make algorithms more fair? Great question, and let me use it as an opportunity to plug a policy briefing that Aaron Roth and I have written um, that's out um, from the Brookings Institution uh, in which we take themes that we discuss in the book, which mainly sticks to the underlying science and talk about um, policy and regulatory implications of that science. So you're exactly right that regulators in many ways are on the flip side of this equation. Um, So in particular, 
if we're worried about bias in in lending, um, it is the purview of the regulatory agencies to detect and and you know prevent that type of bias. Um, similarly, with technology regulation, um, with with both fairness and privacy concerns, um, you know the goal of those regulators is to first of all say what they mean by those words, and then um, you know enforce the technology companies to adhere to them. Um, I think our view right now is that. Um, you know, the regulators are having a very difficult time keeping up with the technology that their subjects have implemented in the last couple of decades uh, in light of the explosion of the, the data that we now have on consumers from the consumer Internet. Um, but in this policy briefing, we basically lay out, um, you know, some some methods that we think regulators should be thinking about adopting. And by the way, we're, we're well aware, and I'm sure your audience is even more versed in this than we are, that this is going to require real change at the regulatory agencies themselves. So the, the suggestions we make um, are not ones that you can just snap your fingers and implement tomorrow. They would not re only require perhaps changes to laws, but they will definitely require significant changes to the composition of the personnel at the regulatory agencies. But, but to say a little bit about what I mean, you know, once we pick a particular definition of fairness, let's say a particular definition of fairness in lending, such as the false rejection rate for loans between a minority group and a majority group can't be more than some amount, let's pick, say, 1%, um, that is an auditable um, definition. Right. So if you give me a particular predictive model for making lending decisions, I can and if you even just you don't even have to show me the details of the model. You just need to give me black box output to it. You just need to let me perform experiments on that model in which I give it inputs and I look at what the lending decision is. Right. So I uh, whatever the whatever the variables or features you're using about loan applicants as inputs to this model. Um, if you let me play around with those inputs or feed real data as input to this model and let me see what the output is, I can audit, I can test, I can measure the extent to which this model violates a particular definition of fairness that we've been uh, that we've chosen. Um, and so in the same way that we talk at length about the technical ways in which lenders can make sure that their predictive models are adhering to this particular quantitative definition of fairness, um, regulators could test whether, in fact, a given model or system is, is obeying it. And long story short, we essentially advocate that they should do that sort of thing. Right, that they should be given black box access or even more. I mean, maybe not only black box access, but also access to the training data sets that the models were derived from and actually perform ongoing technical algorithmic audits of algorithmic decision making. And, you know, lest this sound like an arms, an algorithmic arms race, which to some extent it is, you know, I think the alternative is we either kind of return to an era in which we don't use computers to make decisions anymore, which I think, you know, isn't happening whether you'd like it to or not. Um, we think there's no alternative to regulators becoming more technologically and algorithmically sophisticated so that they can keep up with the subjects that they oversee. Michael, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you. I'd really enjoyed it. 
The challenge of fairness is hard, and that of algorithmic fairness even harder. But it strikes me that where there are clear standards and sensible rules of the road, the mechanization and automation of some lending processes should be viewed as a complicated dynamic that, while pretending certain risks, could provide a supremely useful tool for advancing core societal objectives and norms, including fairness. It's going to be interesting to see if and how regulators respond and what it will all mean for the industry. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.